Fuller, and welcome to Scratching the Surface. I have told friends over the years that I sometimes think my dream job is to be the director of the Cooper Hewitt Design Museum in New York. It seems museum administration in some strange way combines many of my professional interests from design and strategy to curation and publishing and even administration and organization. So when the Smithsonian, of which the Cooper Hewitt is a part of, announced architectural historian and theorist Maria Nicanor as the new Cooper Hewitt director back in March, I knew I needed her on the show and I'm excited to kick off the new season with this wide ranging conversation with Maria. Before joining the Cooper Hewitt, she was the executive director of the Rice Design Alliance, part of Rice University School of Architecture in Houston, and also served as a curator in the architecture design and digital department at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. This conversation takes place as she's just in month six of her new job. So we begin talking about the last half year and what she wants to do in this new position at the museum. We also talk about museums more generally and how they can foster conversation and discourse, how design is a democratic activity that can become an equalizer, and why she's animated by ideas as much as objects. We also, of course, spend time talking about the role of the museum director and what that looks like for her. If you'd prefer to read this conversation, a full transcript of my conversation with Maria is available on our Patreon. In addition to transcripts of every episode, Patreon supporters get early access to episodes, bonus interviews, and a monthly newsletter filled with book recommendations, interviews, links, and other design news. We offer three monthly tiers at $3 for students, $5 for members, and $10 for super fans. Scratching the surface and much of my work is made possible through your support. So if you like what we're doing here, I hope you join us on Patreon. We have a great slate of guests lined up through the rest of the year, and you can help support that and be a part of that. You can head over to patreon.com slash surface podcast to sign up and support the ongoing production of this show. It feels really good to be back. I'm really excited about these new episodes coming up. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I hope you enjoy this really wonderful conversation with Maria Nicanor. You've been the director of Cooper Hewitt since basically the end of March now, so um, six, six months or so, and I'm curious when you got the job, kind of going into it, uh, did you have a mandate sort of either self-imposed or sort of a personal kind of goal or idea of what you wanted to do in this position? Or did the Smithsonian have something that they said, like, we want you here for this? Um, <laughs> what was, If so, what was that? And has that changed or has that evolved over the last six months in this job? Yeah, you know, I, I arrived to the position, as you said, in, in, in late March, uh, early April, and um, there there was not a clear mandate, I, I have to say. I think in part because of the bizarre moment that uh, that the whole process took place, of course, was um, I, I was interviewing during the pandemic, and it was, it was a really long, really long process that was done remotely as well. And um, and there wasn't a very there wasn't a very specific mandate at, at that point in time, in part because a lot of 
uh, of the mandate is rethinking what this museum does mm. um, and post pandemic and rethinking what a design institution does. And like, so there was a lot of opportunity there, which is what I found exciting as well as to crafting what the mandate should be with the team here at the museum. So that part I, I found exciting because of the opportunity of arriving somewhere uh, that uh, that that is looking for that level of, of input, right? So I think part of it is just rethinking what's, what the Cooper Hewitt is in the context of the Smithsonian, but also in a moment of like profound soul searching for all museums and what we're all doing. So that was a sense of opportunity that, that to me was super appealing. Um, and it wouldn't have been if it hadn't been a Smithsonian museum either, which, um, which was very appealing to me because I come from uh, from a system. I grew up in Spain. I, I was born in Spain and grew up there, studied there. I grew up in a system where museums are public and where uh, where that is sort of like a, a given, which I realize is not always the case depending on where you are. So this idea that you could join a national platform like the Smithsonian uh, was incredibly appealing to me with the flexibility that was given to me. So I was given, and I have been given a lot of flexibility. Um, and that's, that's the part that I find super exciting and where I see a lot of potential. There's so many, there's so many things in that answer that I want to pick out and talk mm. about more, but let's start sort of very specifically right at the beginning when you said about kind of rethinking what the Cooper Hewitt is or could be, especially in a post-pandemic world. And I want to, I want to talk about museums more generally in a bit, mm. but specifically at the Cooper Hewitt, what is the new Cooper Hewitt or what is that <laughs> evolution? Can you kind of talk a little bit about just the things you're thinking about and yeah. And, and maybe even just like the role of the Cooper Hewitt today and, and kind of how that's evolving. Of course. Um, so there's, it's important to talk about its history, right, when when answering that mm. question, because I, um, I also quickly realized that um, it's a platform with potential because it has a good DNA to it. So it's a museum that was born in, a, in under very specific, specific circumstances, um, and, uh, and that's part of the story as well as to where it's going in the future. So mm -hmm. it's, as you know, the museum originally was part of the Cooper Union. So it was right. part of a part of a school, right? Um, and, uh, and at some point, and I won't get too much into the details, but at some point, the Cooper Union couldn't sustain the museum mm -hmm. anymore. And there were conversations about decoupling the museum from the school and what that could look like, which, uh, which meant that there was a lot of discussions about dispersing the collections and, and where they would go. Uh, they talked about dispersing them between the Met and other institutions in the city and other places mm. in the country. So that would have completely wow. uh, dispersed this incredible array of treasures that that we now have. But ultimately, what what ended up happening, making the story very short here for purposes of our <laughs> conversation, but what ended up happening is that it wasn't dismantled and this, this Smithsonian institution uh, became part of the picture and the Carnegie Mansion on Fifth Avenue was offered as a possibility, as a possible home for this collection, um, which then ended up being what, what happened. This this house, this mansion here, became the, the repository of, of that collection, which was in its origins closer to a museum of decorative, decorative arts, right? right? right. Then, uh, so if you think of models like the Musée des Arts Décoratifs in Paris, for example, or, or other national museums that were more uh, focus on decorative arts. That was the origin of Cooper Hewitt too. Um, but it was also founded by two women, by the Hewitt sisters. And their 
mandate and their idea and inspiration there was for it, for it to be uh, a laboratory of a museum. Mm-hmm. So they already started it with this notion that I think a lot of us think that we have invented in the last 10 years and we're totally <laughs> wrong. They already did it. They already thought about it. Um, they were the first two women to found a museum. They wanted people to touch things and experiment with them. And they were using that terminology. They were calling it a lab, you know? Mm-hmm. So that to me is like, what better base can I have? and find that yeah. I can so identify with and and so want to take to its next phase, right? So I think there's a lot, uh, just like many museums have very troubled histories um, and I'm in, in every collecting mm-hmm. sort of institution, mm-hmm. that troubled history is there. But I have to say that the, the, that original story of how this particular museum came to be is, is one that I can feel proud about in the sense of experimentation. So that's what that meant then experimentation then meant you know mm-hmm. xyz and and ended up in their collecting practices what i'm interested in is what does that exper- experimentation mean today like how can we be uh, of our own time to honor those ideas but of course that's very different in our current in our current moment right so yeah. I think that that leads to other more general ideas about what museums should be doing. But for this museum in particular, I think is maintaining that sense of experimentation is important to me is something that I don't want to lose. That means that there's a little bit of risk involved sometimes in the things that you do, which I hope that we can also do. Um, So there's a lot of thoughts that I have about how I think we can be risky and experimental and even a bit provocative in the things that we do moving forward. But I'm still very conscious that we are a mansion. call ourselves a mansion we're a gated mansion on fifth <laughs> right, avenue right, right. you know so uh there therein lie the challenges but uh but again this this dna to me means a lot and i hope that we can take it to its next phase i have this is like a this is perhaps a kind of personal question that i was not planning on on asking you but hearing you say that i'm kind of curious if you have any i don't know the word i'm gonna say sort of like conflict and i don't hmm. I, that's a strong word for what i'm trying to say but sort of Within the Smithsonian, even the Cooper Hewitt itself, those are names, those are reputations, those are institutions. And I'm wondering sort of how you think about reconciling or balancing or playing with the tension between kind of maintaining that while also Mm. being experimental. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I I don't think I have a a conflict Mm. with that because I... I think there's a certain sense of of honesty in trying to translate what all of these individuals, they were people, right? Like Mm. you and me, they Mm -hmm. had their ideas, Mm -hmm. they have their subjective opinions on what they were doing in the time and their biases and everything. Um, But I think we keep it honest if we try to to understand, uh, again, what they were trying to do at the time. And I think the intent could be the same um, with different results coming out of it, you know? So I think it's that intent that we have to try and, and honor in a certain way, but also quite frankly, I, I think we can also, uh, fix some of the wrongs in the past and we are, it's our responsibility to do it as well, you know? So not that I'm focusing and looking at what those wrongs were, but I, 
I would want to use the mansion as a, as a tool of subversion, quite honestly, right. Right. to to turn around this this sort of like more gilded age concepts of like uh, what of the makers of taste sitting up here uptown in Carnegie Hill, you know. So those right. things um, I do want to change, and those things I think are important that that we that we address and that we turn in their head a little bit, and and I think that's doable through the way that you program, through the conversations that you pick to channel, through through the exhibitions and the programs and the publications that we do. So um, I think that maintains the, the honesty and the intent. And I don't think it's, it's disrespectful. It's just an evolution of, of where that initial model is going towards, right? Yeah, I love, and I love that idea of subversion there in that answer. And, you know, you've I've heard you talk a lot about in in other interviews about how you kind of see design as a as an equalizer in a mm. lot of ways and that's that's very much my my kind of view of design also and I think in some ways that that has become a sort of radical view of design in in mm. in kind of today's culture when design is seen as uh, as a divider, um, you know, even in sort of popular culture, design it, sure. it sort of connotes elitism. Mm. Uh, and I'm wondering sort of, you know, how you are thinking about that design project of subverting the idea of the museum and then in turn subverting our ideas of design. So that was a big question, you know, you know no, what I mean? But I, I, I know exactly what you mean. And I would say that I would strongly challenge the idea of uh, design as an elitist slash luxury, mm -hmm. right. uh, luxury concept. And, and um, I would strongly challenge it saying that, that I think everybody's invested in design and everybody's an expert mm -hmm. in design in their own way. So from and, and that's why I, what I what I mean when I talk about design being the great yeah. equalizer, because yeah. everybody wakes up in the morning, everybody sets foot on a street of some sort. They've been living in some sort of space of some sort. They're having some sort of interaction with some sort of medium of transportation. They might be in a rural area. They might be in uh, in a more urban area. But they know if they are feeling comfortable walking down the street. They know if when they open that door, that door creaks. It's comfortable. To hold or not, uh, they know if the subway that they're getting <laughs> on mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. working that morning or not. All of those are design systems, right? All of those, everything you're making your coffee, right. the coffee pot, everything has been in some way touched by by design. So everyone can have an opinion about it, and I I would hope that we we can help people see things that way. So see design as that. So I, I very much think that that's, that's almost like the role um, of, of this museum in a way is yeah. to help everybody, uh, every citizen think of it. And I say it as a citizen because it's important <laughs> that we think of people as citizens. Every, every citizen has a, a, a different way of looking. And I think we can at least, um, try and help how we look at things and try and help understand what's behind all of those systems that you're touching on a daily basis and that you actually have some agency in, right? right? So right. when you understand those things, you have some agency as to 
wanting to change them or improve them or leaving them as they are. But right. um, you you are an expert in that because you know you might not be an expert in uh, you know I don't know in a Kandinsky painting, but you are an expert in understanding how you navigate through the built environment, right? right. So that's how I think you you can you know we reach uh, and we should reach people because everybody has an opinion about what design is. I mean, you had this great line and I'm I'm sorry, I'm about ready to quote to you an answer that you gave in another <laughs> interview. Um, but but when Fast Company interviewed you when you first took the role, you have this this line where you said, I want to make sure people know that talking about food systems is designed, talking about mm. infrastructure bill is designed, talking about housing prices is designed. These are all systems that are directly affected by design thinking processes. And when I read that, I was like, yes, that that is exactly right. I want more people talking about design that way. Mm. And I'm I'm wondering if you could sort of expand on that a little bit. And I think, you know, this idea that we're all living in these designed environments and that these systems are all designed in some way. Hmm. Do you think as a as a a visitor to the museum or as a participant in those conversations about housing prices as design is design is it important for non-designers to see that as design or is design more a lens to make it actionable or or relatable do you know you know what i mean yeah yeah i think i i think i do i so i think all of these processes that create the built environment that we're in are not neutral right, right. they're not neutral someone has had a hand at them for good or for bad um I would like people to understand that, right? <laughs> um, so, and I, and I think people do, but I think I think that's part of like the message is like you're you're operating in a universe that's not neutral. Right. Someone has thought about it, um, and and so so I think that's an important that's an important concept. And then there's another idea that has to do with design thinking, which is not really the same as design, but it's about the methodology of uh, and a way of thinking as mm-hmm. which I think applies more to the kinds of systems that you just described so the food chain the infrastructure bill mm-hmm. one thing is to design a thing an object um, and the and the other thing is to apply design thinking and I think mm-hmm. to me the what's interesting about design thinking is that you're showing or you're making visible to people the process in which all of these systems um, are are being built and right. and made and like and how they work in a very I'm I'm a very logical person, <laughs> so I like to see how one leads to two and two leads to three and right. three to four and how that builds a whole ent- a whole entire very complex system. So I don't know if that answers the question exactly, but um, but this yeah. notion of of non neutrality and of people having a hand at it and just thinking of those of process and and what what it means to design a system for somebody and how that affects you directly is something that I would want to make more visible for everybody. I think the way you said that is so right too about sort of the value of design thinking processes is that it makes the process visible. I think is is really well said and it's not articulated <laughs> in that way very often. I think mm-hmm. you know one of the the downsides of design thinking that I see sort of in 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 like an academic context is that it it centers the designer in everything. And so when I when I talk about 
you know, food systems being designed or the infrastructure bill being designed, um, that's not design as colonizing, as saying designers can do everything. It's actually design as democratizing, as saying we're all designing exactly. The but you just yes, and you just put your finger on it. It's not about that person having the power as the designer. It's about acknowledging that the right. jobs of many people, the jobs and the thinking processes. There's so many more people out there right. that are designers without perhaps ever, you know, being someone who would self-describe themselves as a designer. And, you know, I I think you were focusing your previous question around the word design. And, yeah. and I think, you know, that can be contentious and I'm, we can get as many definitions of design <laughs> right. as podcast yeah. interviewees that you've had in the, in, <laughs> in the podcast. Right. But I, I don't always use the word design in, in the last few years of, of my, of my career, I've been working hmm. in an architecture school and I, uh, I gravitated towards, and I just generalized and used the word architecture to describe the same exact concepts that right. we were, that we're describing right. when I'm not just talking about architects. Right. So I think there's a fluidity of terms there that has to do with all the different fields that fall within the design disciplines or that have design thinking in their methodology or that have a design as an output to what they do. And that's certainly a new way of thinking for me because I've usually, I mean, I'm, I'm an architectural historian. I, I like thinking about architecture and urban planning. That's sort of like my thing. <laughs> but now I am responsible for so many other fields that fall under the definition of design in the context of the Cooper Hewitt, right? right? I'm not an expert in fashion, for example, but that certainly falls into the larger umbrella of when I use the term design now. So I have to be careful myself <laughs> when uh, I use it yeah. when I use the term design. So I I think it's an all-encompassing term that can be very misused <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, but I I just honestly I have a pretty expansive understanding of what of what design can be, right? So right. I right. I don't always want to assume that that everybody sees it the same the same way, but I think it's important to set the tone of the conversation that we want to have here at the Cooper Hewitt by saying that not only is everybody a designer, but also what design means is very different to very many different people. Yeah. I think that's I think that's exactly what I was getting at with that first question where it's like how important is that word design in there or is it about mm. these systems, which I think you sort of said, you mm. know, really well. Something else you I've heard you say before is that that you're very much driven by ideas rather than objects. And I'm curious how that manifests itself both in a place like a Cooper Hewitt, but also in a museum where objects are mm. often so <laughs> central. Uh, how do you how do you start to either kind of equalize the ideas in the objects or start to give the ideas a, a, a bigger prominence in a in a sort of institution like you're in? That's a that's a great question because I, and I think about it a lot in the context of the museum now. Also, having spent some years outside of of museums, which was incredibly refreshing, <laughs> <laughs> and then really fantastic to come back into it, having sort of like been on the other side, right, without yeah. without the objects. So. Um, the objects have been the anchor for museums, right, for for centuries, and and I, I see the value of of the collection, uh, the collection that we have here. So we have a, a you know this incredible breadth of what of a very broad uh, definition of what design is and how it's manifested in objects. 
what I'm interested in is I'm interested in the object and the beauty of the object. And I, I'm fascinated by how things are made as well. So that's mm. something that really mm -hmm. appeals to me. But I'm also really interested in the objects as conversation starters. And I think that's maybe where we connect the two things that you were just alluding to, the object with the idea right. and the larger kind of thinking. So can we take those objects and absolutely revel in the, the wonderfulness that of their materiality but also um, but also hook them to what idea it is that they are representing. Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, I think I had a great professor when I was studying architectural and design thinking at the university in Madrid that, uh, you know, could, that started that the survey of that year by uh, telling us that we could pick whatever object, just give him an object and he would lecture the whole entire year around that object. Mm. And, and that always stuck with me because Wow. you could you can pick up a pen and then just starting from the pen just tell the history of the world from that one object so that's where it connects right. it to the larger uh, history of thinking that's where you can extrapolate from material culture into uh, in, into trends in society into uh, how different societies view that object throughout time uh, mm -hmm. the importance of, so I, I think that that's I guess what I'm saying is like the objects can be conversation starters and can you start a conversation with an object? Yes, you can, but isn't it so much better <laughs> if, um, if you can look at a couple of objects and interconnect them and tell a story and that, so it has to do with storytelling, which is another part uh, that I'm very interested in and choosing what way you tell your stories through, what formats you tell your stories right. through, right? You have found this great format that is the podcast, and that's how you excel at telling stories. And But there are so many other ways of telling stories that mm -hmm. can uh, combine that, right? And for me, you know, I've happened to sort of like land and choose museums as my medium to tell stories, and that up often comes connected to the object so it's yeah. um i think those that's the, the two ways sort of like dialogue that happens between ideas and objects i want to sort of expand that question a bit because i i was thinking about you and thinking about this conversation and, and thinking about sort of museums in a post-pandemic world and you started speaking to this in that answer i'm kind of curious in sort of contemporary culture, the this this question sounds like it's a, a challenge, like I'm challenging you and I, I promise I'm not. But how is the museum the best forum for discussing these big ideas? Or what is it about museums that can help foster these types of conversations? Hmm. I don't think museums... Um have always been the best channel for some of those conversations. And I think what we are all in the midst of discussing right now is around, I'm going to choose to say the word formats. It's about formats mm. of how, um, and, and how we need to change the different formats that museums have appropriated for many years to tell those stories, precisely to be able to say that we are uh, a good, <laughs> that we are a good place to tell those stories. We haven't been for many years. That it hasn't been the right medium. It hasn't uh, even been sometimes the right, the right story to tell mm -hmm. or through the right objects, right? So I think what many museums are rethinking right now is, I mean, there's this 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 sort of like whole existential crisis about whether whether we are. So I think your question speaks to that. I think we're all struggling with that and, yeah. and what it is that we should do or not. And 
I think we have to become not do less than what we were doing before, but perhaps expand our definition of what we could do and mm. reach more people through different formats. Let's say that let's say that different people learn in different ways, right? Yeah. And you can learn a lot from listening to a podcast and you can learn a lot from uh, seeing an exhibition or going to a symposium, but sometimes you can learn a lot from going to a party or you can learn a lot mm. from playing or you can, right. right? There's all these different formats. Museums have only used a couple of those in very rigid ways um, throughout their history. So, I think we can open up the walls of museums and expand our activities to not just try and be one thing. I think we yeah. have to try. And I'm, I mean, as I speak to you, I'm, I'm looking down through my window at the garden of the Cooper Hewitt. And um, I would like to see this garden full of activity and right. not necessarily with a symposium around design. I want to see people playing down here. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and opening up the museum to uh, to I hate to use the like the community hub kind of idea again. <laughs> But but I but that's sort of like what I'm going towards is like these places can have other uses. Uh, an example that I think is useful is when you go to vote, you go to vote to a public school, right? Mm -hmm. And no one questions the fact that voting happens in a school. Mm. Why does voting happen in a school? You know, you do other things in school, right. but right. they very smartly, um, you know, thought of a system where actually you exercise your right to vote in a public school system, in a building that ah, is built yeah. for a public use um, or of education of citizens. So I can't think of a better match than that. So yeah. other other uses that museums could be thinking about that we could be helpful to. Um, and again, I, it doesn't have to be through the kinds of programming that we've done in the past. They, they can be completely different formats, uh, open also to collaborations with others. So it's not just what we say uh, and doing what we do, but it's joining forces with others that already do what they do really well to invite them to, to do that together. So I, I think playing with others, with other organizations, with other uh, groups of, of people that might be doing things that are not necessarily identifying as design is important too. So yeah, I think just changing the kinds of things we we do within the walls of the museum and quite frankly outside of them is kind of crucial to that question. Yeah, I I, I have a two part question that's sort of about audience and yeah. and and it seems to me that Cooper Hewitt has a couple different audiences that it is communicating to. It's communicating to the city of New York. Uh, it, it is very much a New York museum. It is a museum for non-designers to learn about design. And I don't mean to like separate non-designer yeah, and designer, yeah, especially yeah. considering our conversation so far, mm -hmm. but you know what I mean. But then mm -hmm. it's also a museum for designers to go and, you know, see their work and the work mm. of their peers and that sort of thing. And I'm, I'm curious how you think about those different levels or like those different sectors of the audience. And then the second part of the question is kind of Cooper Hewitt's position in the design world. And I'm curious how you think the museum can help set the agenda of design today or define the terms of the conversation, which is something that we've kind of been talking about here. Mm -hmm. um, with the position of the museum in the design world, how can it kind of do that while also, you know, kind of speaking outside of the profession? I, I think you're on point asking about audiences. Um, and we are a New York museum. 
And then you described it as, as a museum for non-designers and a museum for designers. Uh, so I'll, I'll challenge your, your poke yeah, there. <laughs> I know. I knew that was coming. That's okay. Um, and that, that makes me think harder. Um, so we're a New York museum, but we're also a national museum, right? Mm -hmm. So what does it mean uh, to, to be a museum that needs to be you know, deeply rooted in its locality and what that locality is and what that audience is. And what does it mean to be a museum that is supposed to speak to the whole entire nation right, <laughs> and, right. and ideas of what design should be for, uh, for the country. So mm, I think there's those two notions, which, which are, uh, which are interesting, which is where I think, that 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 notion of uh, of appealing to non-designers, to people that are curious thinkers that want to learn about processes that affect their interactions with the world around them, I think that's something that we can help do at a local and at a national level. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, you need to. I, I, I'm going to go back to my to my answer of formats. We we have to offer a diverse enough range of topics of conversations um, so that if you want to approach the museum through a very superficial way, you can do that if you want to. Mm -hmm. um, but if you want to dig deeper, if you are that professional quote unquote designer who, uh, who is interested in like a deeper dive in what we have to offer, we have to make sure that those layers are there for you as well. And I think that connects to the position of the museum in the design world. So right. um, if, if we're doing our our job right, I think we should be a part of many conversations that uh, that are happening right now around uh, what the definitions of design are, and uh, if we should be engaging with the kinds of professionals that are having those conversations as well. We should be engaging with academia and the researchers that mm -hmm. are kind of. Um, redefining what uh, what areas are most important for the country right now to for for designers and design thinkers to to be addressing and um, so I think we we become relevant when we offer a point of view and mm. offering a point of view is also connected to a notion of the expert perhaps and uh, should experts be telling audiences what to think? Uh, and uh, quote unquote educate them. This right, is a big sort right. of like big bad word, right? Right. Um, I I think there's a lot of value in expertise, and having experts in any particular field is not a bad thing. And it's a bad thing when experts are not open to feedback. It's a bad thing when right. experts are not being porous as to their thinking and when that expertise is coming top down. That's not right. a model of expertise exactly. that I am interested in or right. that I would like to uh, to foster. But I I value the 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 expertise of people who know things about other areas of the world that I don't know anything about, right? Mm -hmm. And and I want that point of view. So I think we have to not be afraid of having a point of view as well. I think there's um, there's a lot of uh, I think we're we're perhaps a, a little too focused on this notion of like what do people want? What do right. people want, and what should we give them because it's what they want? Sure. I think there's there's a lot of understanding your audience and being much more open to that feedback. And there's the, there's there's correct processes to 
to get that and to understand um, to understand who are who we're talking to and who's interested in, in following what we do. Um, but I think it's disingenuous to think that openness means that you're giving people what they want. Right. And and I think you lose the point of view there. And we all have a point of view. We're all people. We all have our, our, our own opinions. And just trying to say that you're being objective by by offering right. it's a fallacy. This is right. this is only right. not true, but I actually take I, I take issue with yeah, when people totally. Me too. Yeah. when when they say that because it's not it's not true. And um uh, but it's certainly, you know, there was this um there was a, a cover of Time magazine. I, I don't have the year at hand, but the, where the the main person in the cover of the magazine said, "You, you are." The oh yeah, person. I remember this. Yeah, right. And I can't. I, I'm going to get the the year wrong. I don't remember if it was the 90s or before. Or uh, but, and that is so representative of of this this sort of like fallacy of of the of the participation, right? Yeah, um, because yeah. I think there's true deep uh, participatory processes and there's fake participatory processes. And I don't want to be anywhere close to fake participatory <laughs> yeah. processes because they just, um, they don't help anybody. So I, I defend <laughs> the expert of the, the, the notion of the open-minded expert that is willing to change That's their right. mind for That's sure. Right. And and I defend the the, you know, having a point of view as well i don't think it's disrespectful so i i hope that's something that we can that we can utilize and when we choose about what we want to talk about right it's sort of like you and right. i having a conversation today what do we want to talk about well that's right. the same kind of things that we're thinking at the museum what do we want to talk about with people today and in the next year or two years right and and defining what those topics are i think is um is very important. It's very important that we define what those are so that we can um, add to those conversations in fruitful ways. There's a difference between having a point of view and being dogmatic. You know, you can yeah, you can have course. a point of view that is yeah. generative and inviting yeah. as yeah. opposed to a point of view that shuts off the conversation, which I think is, you know, historically in the historically, sense of like statement, yes. how museums have often sort of treated their collections and exactly. their ideas. Exactly. I mean, this conversation yeah. has been very uh, philosophical <laughs> so far. <laughs> and and as I said to you before we started recording, in many ways, I feel like you kind of have my dream job. And I'm, <laughs> I, you know, at the Cooper Hewitt on the website, it says uh, that you manage 86 employees and an annual budget of $50 million and a collection of 215,000 objects. And I'm, I'm wondering sort of what you see as your role as director. And so taking mm. all of this that we're talking about and actually kind of practically how do you enact these in your role as as director? How do you support the audience? How do you support the curators? How do you start to kind of foster these conversations? Mm. Well, first, one day I'm going to invite you to come and experience <laughs> the beauties of the federal uh, system yes. of the wait. American government, yeah, and then you might change your statement. I'm a I'm an aspiring bureaucrat until I get into <laughs> until I get into the system. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of that going on, but I'm you know um, I'm a generalist, uh, mm. and I did study 
to be an expert, but I found that I am better at bigger picture things mm. and at remaining a generalist. So mm. I say that with a lot of pride. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, I've done all the classic kind of like training to be a, a designer and architecture curator an academic. I've taught, uh, I've been a, a faculty and, and universities and all those things. But, um, but my role here is a much bigger picture, um, bigger picture role of looking at the structures that enable for those conversations to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a great team of people here at the Cooper Hewitt. They're all experts in their own areas, which I'm not just referring to curators that have content expertise, but we have experts in storytelling, experts in mm -hmm. video making, mm -hmm. experts in producing exhibitions, experts in packing objects and restoring them and conserving them. So um, there's no lack of expertise in the museum. So my, I see my role um, as number one, being able to create in a very practical way, the, the, the physical infrastructure uh, that allows for all of that to flourish and to happen. And I think there's a great deal of creativity in the administrative part of those things. Yeah, yeah. So I was talking the other day with a dear old colleague and we both really wanted to talk about our org chart. <laughs> and we got, all <laughs> we got all excited about org charts. <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, Organizing things at that level, I think, has a, a yeah. great level of satisfaction of knowing that you're giving people the tools they need to do their better and their best uh, at their jobs, right? And what they need to be doing. And then, you know, quite frankly, I'm I'm fascinated and I would love to have a role here in talking to everyone and all of the teams about what the content of those conversations needs to be. So when you were referencing before the food systems, the infrastructure bill, the housing crisis, I know those are things that our teams here are interested in. Mm -hmm. um, so I think we just have to give ourselves permission <laughs> to do that yeah. and and perhaps i can play a role in that in giving ourselves permission to to change to use the mansion in different ways to have different kinds of conversations here to invite different people to come and, and visit us to have those conversations with us that might not have thought that this was a place for them to have them so if i can be an enabler for those things to happen you know i'll be happy <laughs> enough <laughs> uh, happy enough uh, with it, but um, I, I think that's that's probably, you know, the the way that I that I see my role, and it's just creating the conditions for for that to happen, and, and encouraging people to have a point of view, and to, you know, right. getting the best people here to tell those stories. You started answering this already when you were talking about kind of the creativity in administration and kind of gushing about org charts. And I always joke that my favorite design tool is the spreadsheet. Um, <laughs> do you do you see sort of organizations and administration as a type of design project? Oh yes, yes, um, and and I think that's that's a, a part a part of it that I, I actually find very 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 satisfying. Also, because as well as making possible all the things that I just said, um, I care deeply about creating a place of work. In this case, it's a design museum, but mm. where where people really want to come and work. And I, I, I say this, I don't say this superficially. I've been in a lot of institutions. I've lost my faith in institutions along the way more than once. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've seen terrible things happen in museums <laughs> <laughs> right. and you know 
I don't want to repeat any of that. And I, I want to make sure that, that we, you know, that, that we have uh, an environment here that challenges all of that. Um, and I want to be able to innovate also in how we're doing all of this. So it's not just mm. doing it and then mm -hmm. just burning ourselves to death to mm -hmm. do it because I wouldn't be satisfied with that either. I, I think it's, and, and the time is right for a variety of, of historical and, and world order reasons, I suppose, to, to change the way that you do it too, right? So I, I, I see, at least I have hope in that we can infuse institutions uh, with better practices if mm -hmm. we also pay attention to how we do it and not just like the what you're doing. So that, you know, I talked to a lot of colleagues about that and, and I think there's such a hunger for that change to happen and I see it yeah. happening around us. And if we can make the Cooper Hewitt a place that can also innovate and be a leader in that, I that would make me extremely happy. I love that. I have one more sort of big question for you. you you've mentioned a couple times in this conversation your background in art history and architecture history and theory and one of my interests is sort of the the overlap or intersection or balance between administration and scholarship and how mm -hmm. those start to kind of feed each other and I'm curious if you could just speak about that in your own work sort of how that background and that work is influencing the work you're doing now are do are you do you still consider yourself a, a scholar are you still doing sort of <laughs> you know your own work uh, like your own sort of research work kind of how does that all how do you sort of think about all of that in your in your career in life yeah well goodness I don't even know what to call myself sometimes <laughs> so uh and so yeah it's I I honestly I've, I've struggled to self-define myself sometimes oh interesting that's interesting but I but I think I think you have to know what you're talking about to be able to manage it so that I do mm. believe in so and I think you have to know the rules of the game to break them as well so yeah. I think the fact that Part of my background has been very traditional in that in that way, and I, you know, was a very good student, following all the right paths and all of that. Um, but then realized that that they weren't really taking me to where to what I wanted to do. It wasn't for me to, um, you know, to to be a PhD scholar and devote my right, my right. life to one particular topic. And so. But I think I can challenge it because I know it. And it's very different to challenge it without having experienced it than, um, than having mm. go, gone through those motions. So, um, but then I think there's a different part of your question about your own research projects and things like that. And yes, there are topics that fascinate me that I, that I would love to do my own exhibitions on, that I would love to, you know, do publications right. on and, and dive a little deeper on. And hopefully there's some opportunities for that to happen here. I think the reality of museum work as well is that we're so over-focused on producing and, and production and the output that sometimes there's little space for that. Right. But one has to create it because I think otherwise you, you get, you, you get, you, you create this distance <laughs> with your yeah. object of desire that started yeah. it all, right? So, yeah. um, so no, I try to, to cultivate that. I, I think how it manifests in the future, maybe, at, and while I'm here at, at the museum, uh, is yet to be seen, but I would, um, I, there, there's always, you know, pockets of, of research and, and ideas and things that I'm constantly 
pinning and writing down and saying this could be an amazing project and then I, I leave it there for <laughs> right. for forever and then come back to it and um so uh there's there's lots of things brewing in that in that way as as well always well that's I, I think that's a good way to kind of wrap up I'll ask you the question that I used to end all of these that may or may not be related to what you're just talking about I'm curious what you're reading right now mm-hmm. I love that question I uh my my uh my diet <laughs> in that way right now is pretty chaotic if i think of what i'm reading um because i i read so many different formats again uh yeah, that yeah. that i i don't take your question just about like what book are you reading or like what what is it that you're so um i, I read a lot of uh, a lot of sort of uh, professional architecture design sort of like uh, uh-huh. journals and things like that that's always that's always on the list um and but i i like getting recommendations from friends on books always um and the latest one that i got uh so this is slightly cheating because i've only read i'm only a couple of pages into it <laughs> but a dear friend uh recommended a south korean philosopher whose name i'm going to mispronounce but his name is uh, byung chul han and he he's south korean but he lives in he lives in uh, Germany and he he's a cultural theorist, I would say. And he writes mm. a lot about the contemporary condition and sort of like the situation we're in as humans and like a, in, mm-hmm. in a fast paced sort of like late capitalistic society and and the psychological effects that that is having on us. So I, I've picked up one of his books. He has many, but this one is called The Burnout Society. And uh, the jury's still out. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to finish it, but I... Um, I did pick that one up, uh, both because of the topic, but also because of who recommended it to me. So that's right. I, I always like to to think of that. And then I, you know, I have two kids. I'm reading a lot of children's literature lately. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I I have to add that in there because it's probably the biggest volume of things that I'm reading right now. Uh, and that's been a great rediscovery, you know, like rediscovering classics that you read as a kid and yeah, and finding uh, deeper deeper messages and and all of those. So it's a mixed bag, I suppose. No, I I love that. And that's, I mean, that's why, just like you, that's why I asked this question is because I love getting recommendations. And I know if I'm talking to somebody on the show that they're going to have good, good recommendations for books. And part of me was thinking you might say something like I'm reading a lot of strategy documents right now. or something. (laughs) So I love that you still have time to, to kind of do this other, uh, this other reading. Um, Maria, thank you so much for this conversation. I, I really, really enjoyed it and really enjoyed kind of hearing how you think about all of this work. And next time I'm in New York, I'll, I'll give you a call so you can kill my dreams of taking your job. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jared. It was great talking to you. Thank you for having me. This episode was recorded on August 19th, 2022. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can support the show on Patreon and find previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.